Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. for joining us and spending some of your evening with us. We hope to give you an amazing two hours to, ex- to express all sorts of wonderful and antiquity and, and in, insight and wisdom and um, share with you some of the knowledge that isn't common amongst history books or even the common folk. We have a really great show for you tonight, uh, but first I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for the intro. You can find him at nativestorytellers.com. Please check it out. It's a fascinating site, and it is another way of preserving history that a lot of us have never experienced, but is quite amazing. Mark has an amazing show for you tonight. It's on one of my favorite topics. And um, it's it's very exciting because it's an area that I have not delved into either so we're all going to get enlightened together so see if i can find mark mark you there i am here okay all your how are you doing doing well good yeah hey um we have a great week lined up for everyone and these are the guests i want for this week i think it's it's a Great extension from last week, and I'm very excited about uh, tonight's show as well as uh, Thursday's show, and that will be uh-huh. at 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and uh, you know, we hear about giants in the Ohio River Valley, Kanawha River Valley. We've and you can read Dr. Webb's The Dover Mound. Uh, basically, the eastern United States is uh, very well represented by giants. Uh, you have several examples in the western uh, United States, like the Lovelock Cave and Catalina Island. Uh, but we almost never hear of giants in the Caribbean. Um, 
our guest no, is going to change. Yeah, pi- yeah pirates, pirates but not yeah. giants. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, you're right about that. I, but uh, um, yeah, I just you, you just really don't think about uh, you know, giants on Aruba. Uh, you know, might think about uh, you know, having toes in the sand and a pina colada or something like that, but but not the giants. But uh, yeah, my my uh, travel buddy Heather Arnold is our guest tonight, and yeah, she's going to broaden our understanding of the worldwide occupation of giants. Um, you can also take her tours of the Islands of the Giants. Uh, the Islands of the Giants is also her Facebook page. Uh, Heather is also out and about in New York and New England investigating stone chambers and walls. Uh, similar inter- interest as what Barbara has. So, uh, yeah, we're going to have our perceptions changed of the Caribbean archipelago. So, hi Heather, how are you? Great, how are you? Oh, nice I'm to fine. see you. Yeah. Thank you, not see you. Yeah. And Barbara as well, good evening. Thank you so yeah. much for inviting me on tonight. I really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, this is a uh, uh, great, great way to kick off the week. And, um, yeah, how, how did Heather? How did you uh, get you know learn about giants in the Caribbean? Yeah, it's an interesting story. It, um, I lived down in Aruba for several years, and when I moved down to Aruba, I wanted to start a tour company, and that's what I did. So. I did um, Harley-Davidson rentals and tours and private Jeep tours. And I wanted the tours to be historically, as historically accurate as possible because as I would wander about the different tour companies um, trying to glean some knowledge of what I should be focusing the tours on and what other tour companies were um making the subject of their tours, I noticed that the history of the island was a little spotty. And sometimes tour guides would make, um, you know, make jokes or make the the history up, uh, maybe just to garner more tips if they said something funny. But no one was really focusing on the actual history of the island. It was more for entertainment rather than actual knowledge. And so I tried to, I wanted to, my goal was to make the tours um, as as interesting and informative and true, uh, close to the truth as, as possible. And I began to discover it was very difficult to get the true story of Aruba um, in terms of the history. It was easy to get the history of the islands once the Dutch came and 
took over the uh, the three islands, or, because we're really talking about the three islands, Aruba, Bonaire, and Curaçao. Of course, I was based in Aruba. Um, when, they, when they came and colonized and the Dutch and, and made the islands part of the Kingdom of the Netherlands, of which they still are today, uh, there you can get you know, history right down to the day and, and sometimes the time and very specific. But in terms of the history before the uh, colonialization or even the um, introduction of the Europeans to the islands, there it was a very spotty history. And I realized after speaking to the Aruban people and looking at some documents that were public documents for tourists um, talking about the history of the islands, it all started with this idea that the islands were called the useless islands. And the children um, were learning that their island was useless. Um, And that's how the Europeans first perceived these islands as useless. And the justification behind that was that the Europeans, when they first came, the first uh, explorers came, said, though, we can't grow anything on these islands because they're so arid and dry. They're essentially desert islands. So the islands are the useless islands. We'll call these the useless islands. And I had a very big problem with that. First of all, it didn't sit right with me. It didn't make sense because there were a lot of resources the islands had that actually the Europeans didn't practice exploit that would be far from generating the concept of a useless island. And furthermore, my daughter is a Reuben. She's half a Reuben, half American. And I thought, this is a terrible thing to be teaching children in school or for my daughter to think I come from an island that was called a useless island. And just because the Europeans named it the useless island certainly to me didn't sound like it should be justification for still maintaining this, what what I presumed and uh, was a myth and there were a couple of reasons why I I didn't feel that they were that was the true story um, of these islands just being useless Um, number one is that Aruba in particular still to this day has a lot of gold uh, in the in the earth of that island as well as much gold has been extracted so the island has gold and furthermore the island um of both Aruba and Bonaire were filled with a certain type of vegetation called the Brazil wood tree. And the Brazil wood tree was actually deforested so much by the Europeans that it, um, it's completely gone from the islands uh, based off of their activities. Because during the, particularly during the Renaissance, the Brazil wood tree was very important and a commodity because you would make musical instruments out of Brazil wood. It's a very resilient wood. Um, You could also make canoes, and you could also use the ink that it provides to dye robes, a beautiful royal red color, and and also use it as uh, dye for other things as well. So I knew that these... The, the term useless island, although it was applied by the Europeans, it didn't actually make sense. And as I researched 
further, I went to the Archaeology Museum in Aruba, um, which is very nice, by the way, and uh, I was kind of told the same thing. I I just, I don't think it was trying to um, put me on a different path and get me confused. I think they, they, literally, the people working there thought that their islands were called the useless islands and really didn't have a grasp of what happened before in terms of, um, you know, what was going on on the islands and, and what were the islands, what were the original names of the islands by the inhabitants, for example. So then I continued to do some research and I, and I did some online and I came across a paper. It was uh, written by an archaeologist going on and on and on about how there was no proof on the islands that there were ever giants. And I thought, why is this person going on and on and on about giants on these islands? Who's even asking? Who's even who even brought it up and said, oh, you know, there are giants on the islands? Uh, prove me wrong. You know, I I didn't. It was such a strange um, rebuttal to a non-argument. So I then began to uh, research and about the original um, discovery of the islands. And that is when I came across Amerigo Vespucci's uh, personal account of his uh, interaction with the inhabitants of Aruba and then Curacao. He went to two islands on his journey uh, when he first arrived in 1499. And his, um, it was in his papers, the first letters he wrote to the sovereigns upon his return, that he notes that the islands were called the islands of the giants due to the large inhabitants who lived there. And um, that was my first introduction to the, the, of scratching the surface, really, and, and that's really what it was, to the true history of those three Caribbean islands that really hugged the South American coastline, and that is that there were a giant race of people who live there. At first, we were told it was 5,000 years ago. Now, just a week and a half ago, the archaeologists who dating these sites found out the sites could be as old as 8,000 years old. Uh, I mean, from as, as going as far back as 8,000 BC, mm-hmm. and um, and so now we're learning that it was this was a, a, a race of people that, uh, by the way, was still interacting with the mainland um, Indians who came and then inhabited Aruba and the the smaller statured, average statured people and the giants were both coexisting at the time that the first Europeans did arrive on the island. So um, this was actually a story that needed to be told. It's It's an amazing story. These small islands in the middle of the sea, have this incredibly um, interesting and and fantastic history that was just waiting to be told. And I'm so happy that um, I kind of got caught up in it. And now uh, I think I'm probably one of the only people on this earth who's doing the type of research I am, um, getting to the tr- to, to the bottom of it. And, and it's strictly through the archaeological record. It's solely what I use to um, determine the history of those islands and um, and the the history of the, the first population who lived on those islands, which were the giants. 
Okay, so you're studying basically 9,500 years. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, and the archaeological record supports Vespucci's claims. Um, and it's in the records it dictates as such. So it's just so strange, you know, why it was covered up, um, why it continues to be something that's taboo and not spoken of. It's very challenging to me. But fortunately, the people of the island, they uh, are completely um, excited about these this turn of events, excited about the information, proud of the information, and definitely open-minded to it. As a matter of fact, uh, I get a lot of tips from the uh, people of the island who send me messages about rock formations that they found or stories that they've heard about giants in their family and um, petroglyphs that they have on their property. So uh, it's been you know, an amazing thing to be able to bring the true story of the people, um, bring the, bring light to it and bring this true story to the people because, and, and to the world, because this is part of our human story. This is part of our existence on earth. And I think it's so important that we know about, um, about all of our ancient history as much as we possibly could, particularly if it's something so interesting as giants involved. I think if children went to school and went to a history class and the teacher said, okay, tomorrow, kids, we're going to learn about the giants. I mean, kids would be so excited. I, I just, um, I think it's just a shame that, you know, that there hasn't been more of a focus on, on the actual ancient history that involves the giants in, in schools and um, in general, really. Okay. So o- over this lengthy period of time you, you've been studying uh, what evidence have the giants left behind on Aruba um, you know, you, know, you just mentioned uh, some megalithic structures uh, okay can, can you describe yeah, those uh, like you know, or are they similar to some of the structures in uh, Europe that the listeners may have heard more uh, about from uh, guests like uh, Maria Wheatley? Well, you know, there are some um, in terms of well, what they've left behind. First of all, their bones; they have their skeletons. Mm-hmm. Um, on all three islands, but furthermore, in, the, in terms of megalithic structures, well, they were petroglyphs on all three islands. Um, the the largest cave system in the Caribbean exists in, uh, under those three islands. As a matter of fact, um, there is purported to be a cave that extends from Aruba all the way to Venezuela, south, 16 miles, um, and there in Bonaire there are at least 400 caves, if not more. Um, Some are submerged. Some are slightly underwater. Some are not underwater. Some are high on on mesa walls and and within limestone terraces. And some of these caves appear to be worked. 
And what I mean by worked is, and this is coming from the archaeologists, and the archaeologists actually use the word worked, um, that uh, aside from stalagmites and stalactites being um, carved into faces of of women, um, of total female bodies with wearing a veil, for example, there also appears to be altars made within the um, caverns and um, pillars. Uh, it's as if these um, natural formations were carved to accommodate um, ritual, I would assume, and uh, definitely ritual habitation and burials. All three occurred in the caves as well as I I presume birthing. Um, but then, so you have this working of the insides of caves, which in these, the, when I'm saying altars or thrones, there's also a couple of thrones. There, these are massive structures. These are very large, um, maybe 25 feet high structures. But, I mean, very, very oh. high structures, mm-hmm. 20 feet high, um, carved. You know, um, the handprints, for example, in some of these caves are at least 14 feet up from the from the the earth uh, from where, from the ground where you're standing so, and so then we also have for example in aruba which aruba actually uh maintains the most uh archaeological record of this time than the other two islands that's simply because um in aruba and uh, particularly there was no slavery there were no slaves brought in because there was never a way to have a any type of planting going on any need for um, additional labor because as I said it was a desert island it's the driest of the three islands and so the archaeological record has been greatly preserved on the island because there hasn't been a lot of upheaval of the earth so on Aruba, um, we have a very strange structure. And I, as soon as I saw it, I said, this is very odd because it's called Kasabari Rock Formation. And if you read in the tourist guides put forth by the Aruban government on this rock formation, they'll describe it as very mysterious, seems to come out of nowhere, Seemed to see, literally, they'll say, seems to be built by giants. It's just, you know, I don't even think they know about the giants or any of this. And 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 when you see this megalithic structure, what I can equate it to um, are in the United States, actually, Mark. When you and I um, last November we went to go see you, um, you very nicely um, introduced me to Grave Creek Mound a massive mound of earth, an earthen mound um, that contained burials. Um, mm-hmm. It's This is like a stone mound. It's it's kind of a pyramid and a mound. I think there's the pyramid, the mound, they, they're kind of one and the same. Quite frankly, it's just, in my opinion, just different forms of material comprising yeah. um, each. So. This is a massive, and I'm going to post this tomorrow. I'm doing a whole series, The 20 Days of Giants, on my page, Facebook page, The Islands of the Giants. And this will be my last post tomorrow, which is um, 
the, the 20th post I've done, and it's going to be about Kasabari rock formation. So, and I leave it to really anyone because we don't know the answer. But to me, I, so I leave the answer to anyone, but, but to me, it looks very suspicious. And it looks suspicious for a couple of reasons. First of all, the stones seem to interlock. Um, this is a, you know, no mortar involved, massive stones that seem to um, lean one against the other till they reach up to the top. The top is a flat stone at the top that you can, if you climb up the rocks, which now they have a stairway, and go to the top, it's, you could actually stand and, and lie down, sit down. Um, and right across from it, um, almost double the height of Kasabari rock formation is a natural formation called Hoiberg, which is an extinct caldera that mirrors Kasabari. And um, furthermore, around Kasabari, uh, around this whole area of this mound, are very strange rock formations. I have found a chair, which I'll be posting about tomorrow, a, a, um, a, fa- a stone chair, stone face, um, balanced, massive megaton balanced stones, um, lar- way larger than the balanced rock at um, in North Salem, New York, um, but just precariously balanced. Each one is pointing in the direction of another site. Um, and also around this area of Casabara, you will find petroglyphs and pictographs. And further, Casabari makes, um, with the existence of Casabari on the island of Aruba, it it completes uh, a geoglyph, a massive geoglyph that spans almost the entire island from uh, east to west um, of an isosceles triangle. And this isosceles triangle is um, uses what I believe are actually two man-made megalithic sites, Casabari rock formation, and one we haven't talked about yet, which is Io rock formation, with a natural um, uh, limestone terrace that houses four caves in it, and which was very sacred to the giants. And that place is called Kanashito. And if you line all these up, it makes a perfect isosceles triangle. And if you calculate um, the probability of this happening by accident, it's 0.001% chance that this is accidental. So uh, I feel that Kasabari was built to mirror these nat- the natural formation, such as Hoiberg, that clearly had some importance to the giants, but um, also was to create one of the angles of this isosceles triangle that is formed across the entire country of Aruba. And uh, isosceles triangles were very important to the giants. They buried their dead in isosceles triangles. Above the burials of the giants were stone circles. Now, these wouldn't be megalithic, but still in terms of if you want to tie it to Europe, um, it's the same type of thing, uh, the importance of a stone circle. And um, stone circles were made with either diorite or with limestone. 
diorite stones were obviously much heavier and in most cases much larger than the limestone. Um, and it's not known why the, the one or the other was used, but clearly these two stones in general were very important to the, to the giants. As a matter of fact, almost all of their rituals occurred on places of limestone. So um, the other megalithic site that I mentioned briefly before, forming a part, an angle of the isosceles triangle geoglyph that spans Aruba is Io Rock Formation. And Io Rock Formation looks to me, I mean, some of the stones are stacked and then some are tumbled and strewn across. And, and when I say stones, I'm talking 60 tons, 70 tons, 80 wow. tons stones or more. And it's interesting, again, if you look in the tourist uh, publications, the brochures, it'll say, we don't know how, what uh, the purposes of Iowa Reformation, where it came from, how it came up from the earth, where the stones came from. It looks like giants were playing, and they always mention giants playing with, with playing ball with each other with the stones. And it, it, again, I think maybe it's part of our collective unconsciousness that we know deep down these sites must be you know, megalithic sites that were built by the giants or um, at least reworked by the giants. So maybe the stones were there, uh, but they took the time to put them in specific directions. And again, at Io Rock Formation, we'll, we'll find balance. Stones. And the balance stones each point to another site on the island. There are also, again, petroglyphs and pictographs there. So, um, but, there, but the interesting part is the three islands of Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao were actually one island at one time. This was not an <laughs> island that was attached to the mainland, broke off from the mainland. It is believed it was created through a series of uh, lift due to volcanic and earthquake activity um but uh, the two the one island became three islands through a series of mega tsunamis um the first one being 500 bc then uh, 1500 bc 3500 bc were these mega tsunamis that separated and geological evidence proves this that these mega tsunamis separated, made this one island into three separate islands. So it is my belief that a lot of the megaliths are, and also um, archaeological remains, are under the sea to this day. And interestingly, Aruba, the, the islands are having a, a very d difficult time with the lionfish. Um, the lionfish is an invasive species, and it's really decimating the coral reefs of those islands, which are very important, obviously, to the ecosystem. So there are lionfish hunters that spear hunt. They deep, they deep sea dive, they free dive, really, in some cases, and get these lionfish, and some are using scuba gear. And I was watching one of their videos um, about a year ago, and I noticed a lot of these megalithic stones and right angles, stones cut at right angles, balanced rocks, were under the water. And they even remarked in their comment section on their YouTube video, oh, these are the same stones that are at the rock formations. 
And I instantly, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I thought this was exactly what I thought all along. I actually communicate this information to the archaeologists at the, uh, in Aruba that I think there are far more megaliths under the sea, maybe that are that more under than are above. And as well, I think there are way more archaeological remains um, and skeletons uh, under the sea as well. And it, you know, it would take a massive amount of time, effort, and most importantly, money to um, kick off an, uh, an exhibition, uh, an exhibition, um, uh, you know, a look and see what's going on under the sea. But uh, I'm hopeful that some point someone will say maybe we could use some type of technology. We don't even have to send divers down there to exploratory mission just to see um, what's going on uh, under here with these massive stones. So those are the, the megalithic sites that exist on the island. A lot of also what the giants did was remain in the caves. They did a lot of things in, in caves, and caves are very important to giants globally, um, mm-hmm. where you find where if you're looking for a giant, you should find caves and water. They were very into water sources, of course, and caves, which makes sense, really. Um, but they but they all seem to have that in common. It's you, You'd be hard-pressed to hear a story about a giant just wandering about living in a treehouse, for example. The giants were always focused on dwelling in caves. And in the case of Aruba with the caves, the caves were used for one of three purposes. So one cave was for ritual and, and worship. One cave was for burial, and one cave was for habitation. And there was never any crossover between the three caves. There were, they were distinct. Um, the, each cave had a distinct purpose. I'm not quite sure how they designated each cave for such, but it, there, it was definitely consistent, and that's consistent throughout the three islands. If you see petroglyphs in a cave, you will you know there was has never been habitation in that cave, and there are no burials. But if you do see petroglyphs, you know burials are nearby. So um, in the case of, for example, Kanashito, there are the one cave has petroglyphs, and then the next cave over, that's where the burials are. So um, they were very specific, and they, with what they did very purposeful and uh they in, in my opinion i think Kastabari rock formation and io rock formation were are, are man-made megalithic structures um whose purpose uh, you know is still obviously unknown okay uh heather you're talking about a lot of megaliths uh you know part of the megalithic structures uh, may still be underwater. Uh, you know, we just don't know what's offshore yet. Uh, is there any similarity with, uh, you know, the Bimini Road that you know people say oh, it's you know it's evidence of the uh, advanced cultures of Atlantis. Yes, you know, I, it's funny. I think about that a lot. If, if there's a connection, and um, it, it, I, it's very possible. The Lesser Antilles 
the uh, our, uh, islands of Aruba, Bonaire, and Curaçao are part of the Lesser Antilles. And Antilles is based off of the, um, the, the disappearing island, the ghost island of Antilia. So, which would appear, reappear, it shows up on maps, and it's not there. Um, but this, the, the connection is then drawn that that was just another name for Atlantis. So these islands have wow. a name, say Lesser Antilles, and the connection is to Atlantis directly through the name. Um, the I believe, um, I don't know which European explorer specifically, but they felt that... When they found these islands, Vespucci and, and et al. rediscovered these islands. Of course, they were always there. Um, that they thought that these were parts of Atlantis that had broken off from whatever catastrophe um, might have become of the island, and that these were the remnants. And they felt that, you know, that that's why they have the Lesser Antilles and the Greater Antilles. And Antilles essentially means of Atlantis. So the belief was that these were parts of Atlantis. Um, it's very possible. And I, I think there could be a connection. Now, um, Bimini is not far from Cuba. And there are a lot of connections between the petroglyph sites, the burials, and the skeletons uh, found in Aruba and Bonaire and Curacao. And in Cuba, in a cave system in Cuba that I'm dying to go to, and I will eventually go to at some point in my life. I, I know I will. Because I just, as long as the Americans can travel there, I'll, I'm, I'm the first one on a plane. So there, to, to think that there was travel with these um, giants or some sort of connection, also a breakaway civilization of giants, um, was discovered by the archaeologists who were researching the giants in Aruba. Um, they found a breakaway civilization in Colombia, a small pocket of the same giants uh, who were doing things with the burials, their burials in isosceles triangles. This is another common theme, these isosceles triangle burials. As a matter of fact, archaeologists who were researching the three islands of Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao, when they would see a burial with, with uh, um, made into the shape of an isosceles triangle, <clears throat> they knew right away they were dealing with the giants. <clears throat> and so it's, it's since now, based off of the archaeological evidence, it appears the giants did travel. Um, it could be that this was an extensive, massive, community that through these mega tsunamis of which all the islands would have been impacted if it was that massive um, could be submerged and, and there could be a lot more going on under the sea and of course I mean there's no question there is it's just a matter of to what extent are we missing out on the archaeological record um, due to a, a large percentage of it potentially being submerged so there definitely could be connections to Bimini Okay, I, I, it, it, I, I just want – I really don't know how far apart they are. I, I was just, just curious. It, it just, you know, just what you were saying just kind of struck a, you know, uh, note. And you know, I was just thinking, okay, 
you know, I should ask you about that. And you, know, you also read about um, the Patagonian giants. Was that also part of Vespucci's uh, tour to that part of the world, or is that a, a, another uh, someone else's voyage? But you, know, you hear about the Patagonian giants. Uh, I know that's much farther south, but that whole uh, like eastern side of um, South America and you know, now uh, you know, north of Venezuela, you, you were getting more information about giants. Uh, is there some kind of connection between uh, – yeah, the Caribbean and Patagonia. You know, there could be. Um, there definitely could be a, a connection between the two giants. I mean, you know, although they're much further south um, in Patagonia than Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao, there could definitely be a connection. Um, for example, Patagonia means um, Bigfoot. Right, because the, when the explorers came, it wasn't Vespucci came uh, ashore and, and saw in the sand a, a giant footprint of a big foot. It's exactly what Vespucci saw when his men came ashore in Aruba. That was their first indication Same that thing. exactly maybe there are people here that I mean, that when they saw the foot in the sand, they said right away, we in the letters, we have to see. Where who belongs to these feet? Because whoever belongs to these footprints is clearly someone of a, a, enormous stature. So it's not hard to imagine that there could be a connection between all of the giants that are found really on a global scale. So I mean, there, I think that's pretty much every continent except um, Antarctica. We have mm-hmm. evidence of giants. So. It could be a connection now. Um, so I I don't know if they're uh, genetically connected um, in any way, but it would definitely be. It's definitely something I think about, especially in my research. Um, is there a connection? And um, and you know, it it it's uh, is there evidence that we can? Is there enough skeletal evidence? Um, to be able to make that connection, I don't know uh, if that exists, and I'm positive no one has done that work, but it's very possible that there could be a connection. The other um, interesting um, anatomical um, peculiarity, I suppose you could say, about the giants of Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao is that they had elongated skulls. And their cranial deformation went up, so they had high foreheads, and then went back. So their elongation was not um, up and up, you know, as a cone-type shape that you'll see in, for example, the Paracas skulls um, of Paracas, Peru. But these will be um, uh, elongation where the forehead goes up and then back. And and it's clearly uh, cranial deformation. It's made note of 
several times in the archaeological reports. It's um, been proven by the archaeologists that it was not artificial deformation. This was a naturally occurring oh. anatomical trait of the giants. And so I'm not sure if the Patagonia giants, I don't believe they had elongated skulls. Of course, just the fact that they're large uh, people would assume that you would have a very large um, cranium, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it was elongated. And um, and that That's was a trait. Yes, it is interesting because another strange thing about the giants is that they had a very intricate burial process whereby they would put, they would inter the, the bodies of the giants in very specific positions and with very interesting grave gifts. And then they would exhume the, the skeleton and particularly generally just the head, the skull, and then paint the skull and in some cases the whole body, in some cases just the skull with red okra, and then rebury the body. So, mm-hmm. um, and the red okra was from locally sourced manganese that, with the humidity of the soil, of the sand, would turn the skulls this okra color. And so it was very interesting why they would do that. And they only did it with these these giant graves because the giants another point um to bring up is that these were the the elite of the island the giants were the ones who were running the show they were the leaders they were definitely thought of in a different way they were given more respect and this is all things that we know simply because of the grave gifts that the giants had within their graves the complexity of their burials and um, the positioning of their bodies, and of course this okra um, on their on their skulls. It's it's very it's fascinating. So um, I, I don't know if there there could be a connection with the Patagonia giants, but it's definitely interesting to note that um, they're very close in proximity in terms of on a global scale. Um, the giants were clearly. I believe intelligent because if they did create these megalithic wonders and did survive for thousands of years, they clearly had some sort of um, wherewithal to do so. They were survivors and they had an ability to perhaps travel if they indeed had a breakaway civilization in Colombia and one in Cuba, it would make sense that they could would travel to the mainland just 16 miles away and or vice versa and and that mm-hmm. could be that could be possible too that's that's I often wonder about that and maybe someday we'll know it it, 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 it sounds like you know, you're talking about two distinct races of giants and you know, they're you know they could be um, you know, taking uh, canoes, uh, you know, and may have engineered uh, small ships to make the shorter you know voyage to Venezuela and you know, the mainland. But it, it, you know, some of the cultural patterns sound almost like uh, what you find in uh, the 
the eastern United States with uh, some complex burials. You know, uh, you know, when we've had Jason Gerald as a guest, you know, we've talked mm. about the uh, like log cabins built inside the or the mounds built around you know these like log cabin features and you know a red ochre uh but but there aren't as many artifacts with uh some some of the adena burial or a lot of the adena burials and uh, that's a little difference but uh you know uh a lot of the uh cultural traits do seem similar i you know it's interesting to ponder if, if you know they had seaworthy ships to make make it to america or you know vice versa it's uh yeah it's you're presenting some very interesting information or i don't know maybe it's just kind of a global concept with you know using this red ochre i don't i don't know you, you get it in stonehenge too yeah, it's such a strange thing. I would love it to is. just do research on the red okra because it it seems to permeate the globe. It's this, mm-hmm. um, this need to cover the skull. And um, just last summer, when I was in Aruba, our archaeologists discovered well, not really not archaeologists, a, a, a local um, discovered, and thank goodness deferred to the archaeologists, a burial that was covered in red okra i mean the all the bodies including it was a, a mother it was a mother a daughter and these were the giants a mother a daughter and a monkey and the monkey was given uh, an elite burial on the same level of, of the mother and the daughter it's assumed to be a mother and daughter so it was a, a, a woman and a child but um, and, and then you think, well, why, you know, so this monkey was clearly just part of the family. I mean, thought, mm-hmm. completely thought of as an equal and, and given in, um, an equal uh, burial. And so you think, you know, why, what was it with the okra? And some burials had more okra than other burials. Was it just um, the ha- the resource, you know, having enough of the resource around to to do this. In the case of Aruba and Bonaire and Curacao, it's manganese. I know the okra is made up of different components depending where on the globe you are. But you're right; it's something that you find in many ancient burials. Is this red okra? And I, um, it's interesting because the uh, local archaeologist in Aruba uh, told me, the head of scientific research actually at the museum told me that he, his research showed that the giants had light skin and light hair. They were not Native American looking um, per oh, se. Okay. And he didn't think they were Native American at all in his professional opinion. And so... I thought, I wondered if they had light hair, was this painting of the skull okra um, kind of an ode to them once having red hair in life? Like the Paracas um, people had red hair, and of the, and they had elongated skulls, and their mummies were found with their red hair still intact. 
And I wondered if there was a connection, an ancient connection to an even more ancient race of, of giants who had this red hair and maybe this okra. I mean, this is just me making connection. I have no proof of this, um, but making some sort of connection with their ancient ancestors by covering their skulls with this red. It's just very, it's very odd. And, um, and even the archaeologists will talk about it all the time, and he'll say, "I it's so strange." So one of the strangest things he feels of all, even besides the fact that they're giants with elongated skulls, is that this okra that they find in these specific graves. It's really, it's fascinating. I would I would love to, if I had enough time, um, in you know, in my life, do a whole. Uh, series of research on the okra and and the mystery behind it because it's I mean it's it's absolutely fascinating and completely confusing. <laughs> yeah, but you, you you are making some interesting connect. It's you, you know, I'm just glad you're thinking of these possibilities. I you know it you know at some point. DNA may show that, um, yeah, there, there is not a genetic similarity, uh, you know, like what you were talking about with the Caracas skulls and, and just say Aruba, but it, at least you're thinking to get people to wonder about that. So, uh, yeah, the, the, you know, that's just, that was worth just doing the show about it. But you know, if no one's going to come up with, I just think of possibilities like that. They aren't going to be tested at some point, and maybe the test will prove that you're right. Or, you know, if it's something else, well, okay, at least we pose the question. But and you mentioned the monkey. The pet monkey. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it, but you know, if you read Doctor Webb's uh, Indian Knoll, um, you know there uh, there were dogs buried with people. His uh, Reed excavation uh, report found like uh, it was like two hundred and sixty some dog burials. So that's actually. Uh, it's it was common uh, to find pets buried with people in Kentucky's Green River. So well, I, 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 like find you know a, a monkey in a tropical a, a pet monkey in the like Amazon kind of climate isn't uh, unreasonable to think that. Well, it is unreasonable if you realize that Aruba never had monkeys. So uh, there are no monkeys indigenous to the island. There have never been... It was a pet uh, then. It got there somehow. Right. I I want a pet monkey. Oh, I would love a monkey. (laughs) Are you kidding me? I would love it because I travel too much. I couldn't get anyone to watch the monkey and I'm certainly not going to bring it on the plane as a support animal (laughs) or something. It's not fair to the monkey. But um, 
I, I, you know, the monkey, that's the question. How did the monkey get to Aruba? So clearly there, you know, and even looking, and so I, what I did, the monkey was fascinating because what was happening was, to give you a little background, I'll tell you the story about um, how this discovery came about. Last summer when I was in Aruba, I had the um, the head of scientific research over to my home that I was renting for dinner. And as he entered into the house, he had just gotten this email, and he was so excited. He said, look, the results came in on the skeleton we found. So um, I, so what happened was there was a local man a couple of, about a couple, a couple of months uh, earlier than this uh, conversation. He was looking for et- parrot eggs. There is a local parrot in Aruba, and he was looking for these eggs, I guess, to breed the parrots, which is, you know, or eat them. I'm not quite sure. So he climbed up in um, this limestone terrace and found these caves. And he reached his hand into what he to grab what he thought would be eggs. And it turned out he pulled out a bone. And that's when the archaeologist came in and, and saw this burial. And so when they saw this little skeleton, they said it looks like a primate, and they sent the bones to the University of Leiden in the Netherlands to be tested. And so when the archaeologist came to my home that evening, the results had just come in. He had just received them in real time right there, and he said, look, it's a monkey. There was a monkey in this burial. And what's even more interesting is okay so there were never any monkeys on the island of Aruba they're not indigenous and Aruba is not a a climate that would be good for a monkey it's an arid desert climate I mean most monkeys are really not in the desert like you said in the Amazon or something a little bit with more vegetation Mm -hmm. so um, something to swing on because this is an island of cacti so I mean it's very difficult for a monkey to you know, have a, its um, you know habitat there, but but clearly this monkey was there. So um, then I started to do a little bit more research and 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 found out that monkeys, particularly in ancient Egypt and with with a lot of women in ancient times, the monkey was like their almost like their like maiden waiting, like their like their helper assistant, um, almost an equal in a sense that the monkey was trained. Um, and, and actually after I did the research, I remember when I went to India and I went to Kujaraho to see the ancient temples there, I saw this same scene. And the scene is of a monkey holding up makeup jars and women um, putting, you know, dipping their brush into the makeup. And these are all reliefs on, on temples, what I saw in India. And putting their, um, they're dipping their brush in the makeup and putting on their makeup. And the monkey is standing there holding jars of makeup and a monkey is holding a tray of food. Um, so and in Egypt, ancient Egypt, this was a common thing as well for monkeys to be assisting in female activities, which is, really quite interesting and um another facet that i i want to explore more fully and so if this monkey was buried in aruba on the same level as um as the elites uh with which it it was interred that would mean it was considered 
part of the family, very important to them, uh, essential. And um, not far from where this burial is in Aruba is this massive, massive diorite boulder that is called Monkey Rock. And it is carved into a massive face of a monkey. And it always struck me why was this monkey head here when the people, the giants, they didn't even know about monkeys. There were no monkeys. So here we are, we're wrong. They did know about monkeys. They had one uh, on the island. And where now you say, well, where did it come from? So clearly there was an interaction between the giants and some population somewhere, um, and most likely it was from the mainland of South America, where you do find an abundance of, of monkeys. Um, a, one report I did come across was of um, uh, an early explorer saying how the giants of the islands, they kept to themselves. They didn't weren't trying to war with anyone. They weren't trying to get more land, more territory. They weren't trying to get slaves by taking over a, a, a local, a, a, a nearby tribe or doing anything of a, in a violent fashion. They were very peaceful unless you tried to go onto the island, in which case they, it was full-on attack mode. You, the giants were going to succeed. They were known as master marks people. They could shoot arrows like no one could. Their, their weapons were all of giant proportion, massive spear-like things, massive arrows, um, everything, like almost like hammers they would throw at people. So, um, so to think that they would venture off the island or actually allow someone on to to trade, I suppose, um, is just another component about them that's just so mysterious because ultimately this monkey shows that there was communication between the giants and other people, um, mm-hmm. just which way it went or with whom is is still unknown. But I think the the monkey to me was a major turning point because of a very strange thing. I never told anyone this before. When I first went to Aruba, my first time in Aruba was in um, well, was when I was a child, but more recently um, was in 2005. And I remember I got um, off the plane and I asked one of the local people there. I said, um, "Do you have monkeys on this island?" And I don't know what possessed me to say that. I mean, I don't know why I didn't ask, where's happy hour? You know, why am I looking for monkeys? I mean, the first question out of my mouth when I land in Aruba is, do you have monkeys on this island? It was so strange. And I told the archaeologist when last year, I said, you won't believe this. The first question I asked when I came to Aruba literally was in the airport was, do you have monkeys here? And um, I remember the guy laughed at me who I asked, and now the joke's on him. But I, I just, to this day, I don't know what possessed me to ask that. And, and now hearing about this monkey, um, and of course seeing a monkey rock, it was just very odd. I don't know. Maybe in a past life, I'm, I was a giant in Aruba. I don't know. But it was strange. And, and I hope that they do find 
if they, if they do find more burials on the islands, that they do find more of these monkeys or, or any other type of animals. Because this is, aside from turtles, uh, turtles are abundant on the islands. A lot of the elite burials of the giants contain turtle bones, bird bones. Mm-hmm. This is common, and this is, was a common creature. Uh, but the, to find the monkey and, and to see where this grave was, and it's such a, a, a precarious position, I mean, hidden in, in plain sight for could be as long as, you know, um, 9,000 years, you start to realize that there's a chance that there are more of these burials and that these burials were very important and they didn't want them to be disturbed. So as a matter of fact, you know, because the archaeologists on the islands are, are considered these giants, their ancestors, um, when they come across these burials that they feel are going to be safe, uh, that they're not in danger of being bulldozed over or ran over by an ATV or something, they will just keep it interred and they won't do any sort of, um, you know, uh, archaeological analysis of the site because they feel that it should be, you know, kept in its place and, and, Mm -hmm. um, and which is, you know, great and sometimes frustrating, but, yeah. you know, you have to respect that, and I understand it, and as long as it's safe, um, that's fine, but um, but you do, you know, your first inclination is, oh, my gosh, let's dig it up, let's see what's around there, let's, yeah, and that's kind of, you get so excited and caught up in the moment, but you have to realize these are the ancestors of the people of the islands, and they have a respect and a reverence for the giants, so um, not all of the bones that they'll find will we know any more about except their location. And and when you're talking about the giant burials, uh, some were found in the a few of the megalithic structures. if you, uh, people go to your you know, the Islands of the Giants uh, Facebook page, uh, you, know, you do have uh, maps that show uh, ley lines. Uh, are, are these uh, ne- uh, some of the necropolises are on these ley lines? Is that right? Um, well, yes, and they're on fault lines too. Uh, so fault, okay. fault, both of them seem to correlate. Um, the yes, you're absolutely correct. The, the somehow, in some way, the giants were able to determine where are these ley lines, where and the ley lines run all through the islands. Um, there are there are a few nodes not far from there. And these ley lines are all connecting um, through the islands, there, as well as fault lines. And fault lines and ley lines sometimes go hand in hand. In Aruba, they do. And what you'll also find on Aruba, and this was told to me by the archaeologists, and then I researched it further and talked to the local population, um, they also, the giants, knew how to use, recognize and use portals. And that the island is riddled with portals. Some of these portals can take you to other parts of the island. Some of these portals will take you to places unknown. 
some of these portals are only one way and they take you onto the island. Um, so I was telling a friend last year, I stayed at a house very close to Io Rock Formation. And I was having these crazy dreams every night. And I told my friend in Aruba, and I said, you know, I'm having these crazy dreams. And, and they said, well, you're right by Io. And I said, well, what is that supposed to mean? And they said, well, there are eight portals at Io. Some, and, and it was right by the summer solstice. So it might have been a time of an activation of these portals. And these portals, they, some of them let, are letting uh, beings in, some of them are letting beings out, some of them, but they're constant, they're open now and they're constantly being traversed. And maybe that's why you're having all of these dreams. And um, I thought it was very interesting because the local population fully believes there are portals, they are able to be used, they have been used in the past, um, and they are indicated on petroglyphs as portals. And this is the the, the um, drawings that you'll see in Aruba of concentric circles and spirals, some connected with lines. Um, some of the circles are, look different than others that indicates whether they're letting beings in or letting you travel out or um, in the directionality of the portals. And uh, it's it's one man, uh, the archaeologist told me one year a man came who could, who was a dowser, and he was able to determine all, without any maps or any prior knowledge, all of the locations of the portals. And um, he was absolutely correct because everywhere that he would be led to had a petroglyph of this portal sign, which is these concentric circles attached by by lines um, and some not attached to lines so meaning it's a one-way um, portal but mm. it was very interesting because the people of Aruba uh, uh, are very open-minded to this and because they still retain a lot of their cultural heritage they incorporate I mean it's a Catholic country but they're they they are you know practicing Catholics, but practicing indigenous people as well. And they incorporate both of their faiths, which you'll see this. Um, this is something common uh, in um, a lot of places across the globe, um, thankfully, that these indigenous practices um, mesh with the, uh, the, the religious practice, the more modern religious practices of their time. And they, they fully accept that there are portals on the island, and um, and it's it's fascinating because you if this is an oral tradition being passed down, it very well could have been an oral tradition passed down from the giants um, to you know the modern people now of Aruba. Yeah, and speaking of um, you know, these uh, ley lines and the Portals uh, and the petroglyphs. Uh, uh, when when we're talking about these, you know, the artwork and you know, the engineering, uh, were the, the megalithic structures uh, built to have corbelled uh, ceilings? 
Um, not the ones in Aruba that okay. I have seen, although there is a very strange it looks it's very strange. Um it look there is a strange structure and I forgot to mention it and thank you for bringing this up. Um uh, Kanashito, which was a burial site and a, re- a deeply important site to the giants. There is a chamber um, built of limestone and it reminds me, and it looks identical. I have it on my webpage. Um, it was one of my post-ups for the 20 days of giants. You can look for it if you search hashtag 20 days of giants. 20 is written, the word 20. Um, there is a chamber that looks just like the chambers in upstate New York, in Putnam County, New Hampshire, Vermont, with this, uh, with the stone, the lintel stone at the top of the of the structure, and then these other stones on the side, and then it goes back. Not necessarily corbels, but definitely like an oval shape to towards the back where it's enclosed, um, and it's that. Same, same architectural design as the chambers in Europe that you see and the chambers here in New York and New England. It's so strange. And I've asked tons of people do, did, who built this. Is it modern? I mean, it doesn't look modern. It's completely overgrown with vegetation. It's You can only see it at very certain times of the year, um, kind of like the chambers here when the vegetation is at its lowest point, and um, and then you can see it. But it's uh, no one knows anything about it. There's no modern history on this this chamber, and um, so yes, it, you're right. And thank you for bringing that up. This there, it, yes, it, there is a connection in the, it, with that architecture, and it's with this chamber on the island. Now, I, I, my opinion is. If this chamber is archaic, which it appears to be, it's at an archaic site. Um, mm. there, there, there could have been more chambers scattered about the three islands, but just you know, similar to what happens here in New York and New England, when the site is unprotected, it just gets the stones get taken to build something else, or to you know, or just bulldoze down to put in a house or a, a strip mall. And um, with no regard to what this was or what was the purpose or how old is it and is it something that should be studied. But, yes, there is a connection, and, and it is in this arc, this one chamber. It, it's, as of this moment, it's the only chamber um, that I've come across on any of the three islands. And it's, it's very mysterious. It kind of leads to nowhere, this chamber. But in the background is, uh, is this enormous limestone terrace that houses this cave system um, that did have giant habitation and actually giant skeletal remains were found in one of the caves. So I believe there's a connection between this chamber and this site, but its purpose is unknown. Okay. And when, when, if you're doing your tours and, you know, you know, let's just say everyone congregates on Aruba. Uh, how, how do you get to the other uh, two islands, uh, Curacao and Bonaire? Uh, it, do you have to take uh, flights, or is it just a short 
boat trip since they were all one island or uh, you know a one island at uh, one period. Uh, you know, uh, what's the mode of transportation through those uh, uh, islands? Well, you know, this is a great question because the reason why, you know, when I'm going to be spending a month in Aruba and part of that time I'm going to go over to Bonaire from Aruba. Bonaire is probably of the three the most difficult to get to. Um, there, a, a direct flight just opened up from Miami to Bonaire, but you have to get to Miami, of course, first, mm-hmm. and then the flights from Miami to Bonaire are not cheap at all, and they don't run every day, and um, they when they do run, it's only once a day, and um, it's very difficult to get to Bonaire. There is a high-speed ferry that is being, uh, the port is being built now in Aruba, but the high-speed ferry will still take you several hours to just to get to Curacao. So um, it, they're several miles apart, and it, it's very difficult to get to. Aruba is very easy to get to. There are direct flights um, nonstop from New York, um, from Miami, and you can connect to through any major hub and get to Aruba several planes a day, millions of people a year are going in and out of Aruba through cruise ships or through um, flights. Now, Bonaire does have a cruise ship terminal. They recently opened up, but the cruise ships hardly ever go there. Maybe once every couple of weeks, a cruise ship will come to Bonaire. Um, And Curacao has more um, cruise ship activity and is slightly easier to get to but still rather difficult and not cheap. So um, so I'm going to Island Hop. I'm going to go, and that's what I did when I would go to Curacao as well. I would always leave from Aruba. Aruba is the easiest and probably cheapest to get to. And then Curacao and Bonaire, with flying is your only way. You can take a private charter. It just would take quite a while. And, uh, you know, unless you had some time to kill and, and that would be wonderful to just take a boat over to the islands and and um, tour in that way. That's definitely a wonderful leisurely way to do it. But in the um, in the essence of time, it's best to take these flights. And for example, even the flight I'm taking to Bonaire from Aruba doesn't fly every day. It's only three times a week. And if there aren't enough people on the plane, they'll just cancel the flight. So you you could be stranded so i have to fly from aruba to curacao and then to bonaire i could be stranded with my daughter in curacao we don't even know what to expect so um it's going to be an adventure you know when i would travel back and forth to curacao because the american consulate is in curacao i sometimes my flight would leave two hours early and if you weren't at the airport two hours early you missed your flight the plane would just take off so it's you know it's the islands it's it's definitely not like here in New York where oh it's two o'clock and you know if it has if the plane's supposed to take off at two and and it's ten to two well then the plane's already late so it's very structured here it's very you know you're on island time down there so um, the best way would be to fly to Aruba and then to island hop from there. That would be the most economical and the easiest. Uh, but it's definitely not 
at this point, not as easy to get to Curacao and Bonaire as it is to Aruba. And Aruba is an amazing place. You can, you know, find a lot of adventure and archaeology and history on that island of Aruba, even though it is the smallest of the three islands. It, as I said, does retain a lot more of its ancient history due to the fact that there wasn't this massive presence of farming and et cetera by the early Europeans um, who arrived there. Yeah, uh, uh, Heather, I've never uh, been uh, to in, in the Caribbean. Uh, uh, you know, so I, I'm I'm learning. A lot from you, um, yeah. Developing an interest in in going there maybe in February. Great, but, uh, <laughs> do it. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've uh, spoken about yeah a little bit about the you know there, there are a lot of museums there, but you know what. Uh, um, you know, when you do your tours, uh, what are people seeing at the museums when you're taking them there? Is, is there like a – are there any giant uh, uh, giants on display? Uh, are there other prehistoric uh, like artifacts? Out well, for people to see, you know, uh, you know, w- uh, what are in the museums on Aruba? Um, that's a great question. So there is one; uh, they, they called it pre-ceramic, which was the name of the, the giants, the age where the when the giants lived in Aruba. Now, just as I said a week and a half ago, it was changed to archaic. It was proven that they were actually archaic, meaning that for, from 8,000 BC to 500 BC. So there's one archaic artifact in the museum. It's a, a, enormous stone tools. And all it just says under it is, uh, this is the only pre-ceramic tool we have ever found in, in Aruba. And which is so comical, and I'll explain why. And, <clears throat> but the rest of the museum has a lot of the later period um, artifacts. So what happened was eventually the mainland Arawak Indians did come to Aruba, did settle, did start to do pottery. They had a bat cult. They worshipped uh, bats. So they have a lot of bat cult iconography. They have um, their their pottery. You know, this was the introduction of pottery. Very distinct patterns on this, these potteries. The burials were very distinct. They were in urns, burial urns. They were, um, the bodies after they died, they were taken apart and put into these urns and then buried. Um, so their their archaeological remains are, are far more abundant than the archaic archaeological remains, which of course makes sense just based on the great antiquity of the giants versus the more later um, the uh, Amarac Indian, Arawak Indians who arrived. Um, so it's a lot of the Arawak Indian, um, uh, particularly from Venezuela, uh, remnants, ru- um, 
uh, like their buttons that they made, um, uh, sculptures that they made, their 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 bats, um, with these pottery pottery with bats on them, and really cool stuff. But very little on the giants, except this one stone tool. Now, um, just last year, a friend of mine on the island was looking in the caves, and he found a massive stone tool. Um, as soon as he found it, he sent me a picture, and he said, "Do you can you believe the size of this tool I found in the caves? And where he found the, the tool is exactly where the giants used to hang out. And I said, well, that's definitely an ancient, you know, uh, tool from the Giants. You take it to the museum, see what they say. And he took it to the museum, and they said this was the largest tool, archaic tool, they had ever seen so far. So then when I went to Aruba last year, the, my friend took me to the spot where they found this tool. And I looked behind me, and all over there were tools. The entire, I mean... The, the, every, as far as you could see, there were remnants of ancient stone tools, massive stone tools, heavy stone tools, all strewn across the desert sand. And I said, well, this must have been where they were making the tools, clearly, because you could see tools in various forms of completion. Um, and some were broken, some were um where you could tell where they started creating it and then they for some reason stopped some had been used I mean it was just it was amazing it was as if time had stopped and you could see exactly where they were all working on these tools maybe you know 5,000 6,000 7,000 years ago and it was absolutely incredible and I think wow you know there's so much that could be in that museum so this tool the, the archaeologists collected the tool, and now it's in the basement of the archaeology museum, so where all the good stuff is. So the other, um, so that's all that's going on in that museum in terms of the archaic giants. Now in a uh, Curacao, at the Curacao Museum, there were two skulls on display of the giants in that museum. And just today I posted on my Facebook page about how um, a reporter in 1980 in the Reading Eagle from Reading, Pennsylvania, was talking in an article about their recent trip to Curacao and saying how they went to the Curacao Museum and of particular interest were these two skulls on display of, a, of the giants who lived on the island and were about seven to eight feet, were over seven to eight feet tall. And so um, I was, I, when I saw this article, I said, I've got to find these, these skulls. So of course my first inclination was to call the Curacao Museum, which I hadn't been to yet. And they told me, oh, we just went through massive renovations. We have no idea where the skulls are. Call the archeology span museum. So, I called the archaeology museum in Curacao, and they said, oh, we don't know where they are. You have to talk to someone at the Curacao Museum, another person. So I called this other person on the, at the Curacao Museum, and they said, we think they're somewhere in the Netherlands. 
that the government came, they took the two skulls, and we have, they are not here on the island of Curacao. My goal was to get them back to Aruba, where they belong, because they were actually taken out of a, a cemetery in Aruba and then brought to Curacao and put in the museum. I, to this day, I have not find the, found the skulls, but equally as difficult as finding the skulls were finding pictures of the skulls. I could not find any photos, and I knew an entire archaeological report had been written up about these skulls. Finally, after eight years, eight years I looked for this archaeological report, I finally found a copy of it in an antique bookshop book in Europe. And I have finally t pictures of these skulls, and one of them I posted just today. And they're absolutely fascinating and completely strange and bizarre and I wish I could see them firsthand and um, and those are the only two reports I have of these giants being on display in the island now it could be that a lot more is um, in the basement of the uh, archaeology museum for example the largest uh, most complete giant skeleton ever found was found in Bonaire it's called the Bonaire Skeleton. It was believed to be upwards of eight feet tall, probably taller. And that skeleton is supposed to still be in Bonaire. So I will be, my first stop after I get off the plane will be to go to the Archaeology Museum and inquire about that skeleton. Now that skeleton, again, is not on display and it's supposedly in the basement. So it's always a challenge getting this stuff to make it to the main floor. I don't know why. To me, I find it so fascinating. I, I even told the archaeologist in Aruba, I said, you imagine if we get back these skulls, what a draw it will be in the museum to have them, uh, you know, uh, on display. And, and you can advertise about how these skulls are back and they're on display and people can see them. He said, well, if we would even put them on display. Oh my gosh, this is so challenging. You know why? Why? We, we, why can't we see these things? It's just so strange, and you know, it's it seems to be globally that it, everyone wants to kind of keep it on the down low about the giants. Like mm -hmm. let's not let's not freak people out with the giants. It's just so strange. I don't get it. But yeah, so the museum. I highly recommend the Archaeology Museum in Aruba to anyone. It was actually um, the people who helped build it, ironically enough, were the Smithsonian. So this, it, the Smithsonian, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? And the Archaeology Museum in Aruba, they're, they're called each other sister museums. So the Smithsonian helped build uh, this museum. And, hey, I mean, a lot of this stuff could even be there. Who knows? I mean, it seems that that's a common theme, too, things ending up at the Smithsonian, never the to be seen again. Yeah, the big basement. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I've been to the basement of the Archaeology Museum in Aruba, and I was so, I mean, it was incredible, the things that are down there. And I, I, I just, the whole time I was thinking, I can't believe that no one can see these things. And, and you just can't even figure out why. And, you know, they say space and this and that. There's not enough room. And I don't know. I, I don't know. I think sometimes there isn't enough room, and sometimes maybe there are other motives involved. Okay. Well, you know, we've heard a lot about you know the Caribbean islands, and you know, maybe we ought to 
go over the other side of South America and hear about your adventures on Easter Island. Yes, that yeah. was a wonderful trip. That yeah, uh, yeah, the, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, the, the, you know the photos you have there are uh, phenomenal. That must have been just uh, uh, awe inspiring trip. Uh, you know, just you know, uh, what was it like? You know, what was the impression it left on you? Yeah, it's you know, it's such an archaeological wonder and the moai are so strange yeah you get this really strange vibe from them it's um they're so they're they're larger than you even can imagine and even though you see them on tv and you see video it doesn't matter once you are in front of them and you you the magnitude of the size of these things how tall are they I mean, some one the largest one that never made it. It fell, it fell before it got to, was going to get to the base. I believe it was twenty feet long. I mean, they're massive, and and they're heavy. I mean, just the stone is just ridiculous. I mean, they when they um, Ahu Tongariki, which was destroyed by a, a tsunami, and it, that is the um, that's actually on my Facebook page, Heather L. Arnold. That's uh, on my on my wall um, is my the picture in front of that ahu with all the moai there um, standing. Those They all had to be put back up on the base um, because they had all been knocked down by this mega tsunami that came through. The archaeologist I traveled through Easter Island with, his parents were archaeologists who were the ones who, who reconstructed that site. And there was only, they had to actually invent technology to get these uh, these Moai back onto the platform. They could not, they, there was nothing on this earth that could lift these stones, these, these monoliths, these Moai, and put them back on the platform. And this Japanese company, because Japan has, feels culturally connected, to Easter Island. They um, created this massive crane-type machine uh, that they basically had to bring over in parts on ships, um, piece by piece, and build this machine on the island, and on Easter Island, and then place these uh, moai back on this platform. I mean, just an astronomical uh, feat. to think that that's what we had to go through in modern times to put the moai back on the the, the platform. How, how did it get done uh, thousands of years ago? How I mean, and when you go to uh, Vinapu, which uh, that is the wall um, in Aruba, a megalithic wall. I'm Aruba, sorry, Easter Island, a megalithic wall where you can those stones. There is no mortar. And the stones are so closely put together that you can't even get a piece of paper through this into the slits between the stones. It's that well built. Still to this day, no idea how. Um, it's just baffling. And uh, interestingly, the some of the oldest moai um, on the island of Easter Island are female moai, 
which I didn't even know female Moai existed. And, I didn't know that either. Yeah, and they look very strange. They don't look like the Moai you're used to seeing in the pictures. These look, I mean, quite frankly, for lack of a better term, aliens. I mean, they look very bizarre. Elongated skulls, long ears, um, long faces, long bodies, like just almost like Akhenaten's body, this strange, almost misshapen body. And um, the female Moai all seem to be pregnant, which is also quite interesting and could be um, indicative of a, a, a female-dominated society. Because interestingly, the correlation that I made between East Island and the islands of the giants, Aruba and Bonaire and Curacao, is that as these, as the Moai in East Island are, the females are um, shown as pregnant. In Aruba, there are two petroglyphs, and they are both of females, and they are both of pregnant females. So this is another strange little fact I, I couldn't believe. And um, to see, you know, this is not something strange. This is worship of the female in the form of the divine mother. You see this on a global scale. It's the oldest religion on the planet is the worship of the, div- of the female in the form of, of the mother. And so now you start to think, were these um, civilizations all contemporaneous of one another? And were they the same people just spread all over the globe and practicing this same um, you know, worship of the female and these m- megaliths and monoliths? And it's just the, the connect- you start to make connections when you go to Easter Island, to other places on the globe. Yet no other place really has these massive moai. But when you do look at some statues across the globe, you can see similarities with the moai. For example, statues where hands, uh, the hands are on the belly. Um, that's a, that pose is a common pose that you'll find uh, globally, uh, particularly in South America, actually. So... Um, that was to me, you know, just incredible to see the size of the moai, the female moai, uh, trying to figure out how they moved the moai. And then I did go into a lot of caves in uh, in Easter Island, which the cave system was just recently discovered in terms of its complexity. The, the island is riddled with caves, and it's the same type of situation that we had in Aruba. So I went into a cave in Easter Island that was worked, for for lack of a better word. They made stone beds, stone chairs, stone tables, and just inside the cave, taking what was in the cave and carved them into places where they could live and, and, um, and sleep even. Um, and then you saw some caves like the Maki Maki cave that is just Bill, the entire cave is just, it was no habitation there. It was just all petroglyphs of faces. The entire cave was filled with carved faces of their creator god, Maki Maki. Um, and so, again, there's this similarity of certain caves were for rituals, certain caves were for habitation, and they did also find 
some burials um, in these caves. And it's just fascinating. The most fascinating moai to me on the entire island was the moai with four hands. Um, this moai oh. has, yeah, it's five fingers on each hand, but has actually four arms and four hands, which is, it's really four hands. It's just two arms and then two hands coming from each arm. It's very strange. Uh, and, um, and that, and then also another correlation between Easter Island and the islands of the giants was the, um, the, the one stone in Easter Island that's considered the navel stone. This is the stone through which everyone was born on the islands, and it connects directly into the earth to the mother goddess. And that same um, mythology, the same story, is told in Bonaire, where there's a stone called the mother stone, and it's considered oh. the navel of the islands. And all of the people of the islands were thought to be born of this stone. And again, it connects, it has an umbilical cord that connects through the stone into the center of the earth to the mother goddess who gives birth to all of the people. So it's, again, you're hearing the same stories, the same, the same phrases used. It, it's, it was fascinating and, and it just even um, deepened my appreciation for these ancient people going to Easter Island. It's, it's absolutely incredible. If you ever have the opportunity to do it, do so. I, I hope to go back in my lifetime because I figured out how I can do it even easier with the flights, but it's still not even easier. The, the worst part about Easter Island is getting to Easter Island um, and then getting back home because it took me three days to get to Easter Island. I spent five days there and then three days to get home. So it was brutal, but it was worth it. And as I said, I would do it all again, but it was incredible. And and um, it's hard to even express to people how you feel. It just stays with you when you, when you leave Easter Island, it just, you'll always have this feeling um, of being there, it's it's very interesting place, and the energy is quite um, quite intense, and it's it's wonderful. And I recommend it to anyone who's just on the fence about going. Definitely go, do it. You'll never regret it. Yeah, uh, what's the population of Easter Island now? Uh, do do we know how many people were living there when the uh, Moai were erected and oh and you know, a uh r- related question is who who are the faces are they gods or just you know the uh social elites and you know, VIPs of the day Yeah I don't know if anyone's sure about what the population is at the time of the building of the original Moai because the original Moai were made of basalt, and and um, and that basalt is now underwater. The um, the water uh, levels have risen, and that quarry where that basalt was got was uh, which is on the north coast of Aruba, which I uh, of Easter Island, sorry, that which I hiked. That whole quarry is now submerged. So oh. at whatever point that quarry was not submerged was when the oldest Moai were being built. And I don't know what the population was at that time. I don't know quite frankly, if anyone um, 
does. Um, and what was the other part of your question? I'm sorry. Um, oh, the about. Oh, yes. Okay. Who the Moai represent? Oh, so the archaeologists. So no two Moai are the same, which is um, so in terms of expression, in terms of this, they have symbols on their backs. Um, there, no two are the same, um, and they. The archaeologist I was traveling with, he said that they were their ancestors. They were oh. the people who had passed on and that they became gods in death. And this was to um, commemorate them. And perhaps some of them were, were kings of the chiefs of the tribes. And this was also a way that this was just transferring the soul from the body now to the Moai. And, um, and when you would when the eyes were placed on the Moai, the eyes were made of coral and with uh, black obsidian for the pupil. When they were placed on the Moai, then the Moai was activated and its mana was activated. And the mana is the spiritual essence, this, this matter, um, this power, this life force. As a matter of fact, you'll see some Moai, particularly in the quarry that have cup marks that have, cupules in them um, where they were the, the archaeologists said they were trying to people were trying to scoop out the, the mana the, the power the life force from the Moai that the Moai can still to this day the, the, the local people in East Island fully believe that the, the statues have this power in them that the Moai have this power and that's why they have such trouble um, welcoming tourism, which they know they they need tourism, and and being kind of ashamed at what they're doing with tourism, because as with in a, in the islands in the Caribbean, so is going on in Easter Island that these people in Easter Island they feel these are their ancestors, the Moai. This is their spiritual connection to the to the past, and and these are ritualists. Um, places these are places of worship and they should be revered and now people are are, locals are taking tourists up and we're taking pictures and we're taking pictures with the moai and and so it's a real challenge to um to these indigenous populations of the islands with um these sites and and that's something else that plays into all of this and trying to find the the true history is a lot of uh, the locals protecting their heritage, not uh-huh. wanting tourists there, not wanting researchers there, and, and really just wanting to keep the spiritual aspects of their society intact without the encroachment of tourism and interlopers, essentially. So, um, so yeah, it's, it, they they fully believe that these. Moai still hold this, these souls, these spirits, these life forces within them, and that they are still uh, revered as such. So um, that's what that's what they believe the Moai to be. Yeah, and you know we're most mostly aware of the ones that are what uh, standing on the cliffs. What facing uh, the sea, but yeah, th- it seems like there have been several that were discovered uh, buried. Uh, uh, what's 
what's that all about? Yeah, as a matter of fact, they all have bodies. They're not just heads. They're, they all have bodies. Um, some bodies, obviously, larger than others, but they all have bodies. Well, I think what happened, I mean, where I stay, I rented a house on a beach um, by Ahu Tahai. So there were a bunch of Moai right outside my doorstep and then the ocean, the Pacific Ocean. And it wasn't until, it's so crazy, you get so wrapped up in what you're doing and seeing and everything. And then one morning we, I had a balcony outside my bedroom and it was the second floor bedroom. And I walked outside to the balcony to watch the sunrise. And then I noticed there's a huge sign. It says tsunami zone. <laughs> it's like a big sign with a cross, with a skull and crossbones. And so what's happening is, and this island has been um, really battered by tsunamis uh, over time. And these Moai are of such great antiquity. I think just these repeated um, battering by these tsunamis has caused these the sediment to build up around the moai and then for them to be buried. The, uh, the, maybe there are cases where they were purposely buried, maybe as revenge or something like this of one tribe to another. But for the most part, I think just due to their great antiquity and these series of tsunami events that have occurred, uh, in Easter Island, I think that is what caused these moai to become buried. And, oh. um, you know, it's very hard to get permits to, to dig in Easter Island. It's very hard to even get people to spend the money to do research in Easter Island because it's expensive. Um, and it's also most of the island is protected archaeological sites. That's why it's regulated each day how many people can come in and out of the island um, to, because most of the island is still uh, unexplored, un, unexcavated archaeological ruins. So um, you, you have to, as soon as you land, you have to pay money to, to just go in to see the Moai um, right at the airport because as soon as you step out of the airport, you're seeing Moai everywhere. They're all over the place. We just see the famous ones, but they are literally, they litter the island. And um, and yes, and, and some of them are buried and some have been uncovered, but then buried again by archaeologists. And I'm sure it's to protect them, but it would be nice to see one, you know, fully excavated. And, um, but you can see them in other uh of the Moai that have been excavated um, and they, you can look at their backs and they seem to have like type of loincloth on with onks and other spiral symbolism and very, very common symbolism found globally um, are on the backs of these Moai. And it's very strange and, and very interesting, but that's really all that, I think, I, but there could be something deeper for why they're buried. But I think it's just because of their great antiquity and what they've gone through, which is why they're buried. And, and because of the difficulty doing excavations there, it's why they're still buried. Yeah, Heather, uh, I I just, uh, uh, maybe it's just the photos I've seen where it seems like, uh, like the Moai uh, or perched on a 
yeah, a ridge overlooking the ocean. Uh, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, like the quarry, maybe some of the other ones are uh, you know, down by the beach. And, uh, yeah, the s- tsunami knocked, knocked some over, uh, buried them with uh, uh, sediment. And, you know, uh, but, you know, talking about the quarry is... Uh, submerged now, you know, know, we've earlier in the show, uh, you were talking about the, you know, the Bimini road is now submerged. Uh, uh, You're thinking that, uh, you know, there's uh, reasonable expectation that uh, some structures are submerged around uh, Aruba, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's uh, interesting to look at the effects of rising sea levels on archaeological sites in the or around the world. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's you know, I think a lot of, I mean, even Graham Hancock talks about this that. A lot of these sites are submerged globally. It's just mm-hmm. the way it is. I mean, there's been a rise in sea levels over the thousands of years, and and if there's been an earthquake or or a volcanic activity, this can compound it, and definitely tsunami events. So I I, I think you know the next great frontier here on Earth is below the sea and right um, on the outskirts of these civilizations that once existed, you know, for sure in Aruba, for sure uh, elsewhere in the Caribbean, um, you know, definitely Easter Island. I I mean, the caves, there are caves in Easter Island that are submerged that weren't submerged before. There are caves in Bonaire that are submerged that weren't submerged before. There, I mean, it's on a a, a global scale that Mm -hmm. we can definitely, I mean, even by Catalina Island, um, there are some indication of maybe some structures under the sea, definitely off the coast of India. They're finding more and more stuff. I mean, as technology um, gets better and better, maybe we don't even have to dive to, to or create, um, you know, uh, you know, some type of machine to go under the water and, 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 submersibles to look for these things that we can actually just look through um, some sort of technology that makes it less intrusive. But I think a lot of the story can be told further by looking under the sea. And until we do really um, explore the underwater world of these ruins that we don't, we won't ever get the full story or at least get closer to the full story because we may never probably ever get the full story. But um, I think that this is, you know, a a common theme on a global scale. And I I just, you know, it's a matter of getting technology, getting people to do it, getting the money together to do it, getting the permission to to do the research. Um, And that all takes time and, and a lot of work and you know, a lot of people just figure, why bother? But I think that's really the next frontier here in exploration and in putting the pieces together for um, this this ancient puzzle is exploring under the sea. Okay. 
And, and Heather, we're down to about four minutes. Uh, do, do you want to give out your uh, you know, all your Facebook pages, and you know, you, know, you have a book coming up? Uh, anything else you want to promote as we wind the show down, please? Yes, sure. Well, firstly, I'll be at Phantom Fest in Lebanon, Virginia. I'll be doing a presentation, an hour presentation on the Giants. I'll also be there for meet and greet. And um, that is going to be on November 2nd of this year in Virginia. It's Phantom Fest, um, P-H-A, not Phantom like that, not with an F, phantomfest.com. Um, actually, I don't know if it's a .com. He's Phantom Fest. He's, he has a Facebook page. I think that's the easiest way to find out how to register. Um, I do think he has a webpage, but I'm not going to say that if it's not working. Um, Then my book should be ready by then. Um, Hopefully fully completed that my book will be the islands of the giants, the lost race of giants of Aruba, Bonaire and Curacao. So in November, I'll also be signing my book. Um, And I have um, several Facebook pages for the islands of the giants is one my um, personal page heather l arnold and i have a facebook group called stones bones and the paranormal um, where we just share all this kind of hidden history interesting stories that we might have missed in archaeology and um, other aspects of the ancient world and um, and even now things that we're finding that um, fit into that genre and um yeah, and then I have tons of podcasts on, on YouTube, that, um, and now this wonderful one I did this evening with you guys. So um, you can find my information there as well. Okay, cool. And it's, um, we have about three minutes left. Uh, you know, people can tune in Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, we have another spectacular show uh, lined up. Uh, it's um, t- Tonight was just uh, a great way to get the week started off on a uh, great note. And uh, it is Captain Cook one of the first uh, white people to see Easter Island? I think it might have been Captain Cook. Yes, I think you might be right. Okay, I I, I wasn't sure about that. I, I, I think there's like there are a couple watercolors that yeah. if it wasn't. Uh, Captain Cook, it was another one of the uh, famous British admirals, uh, or you know, whatever the title is, uh, who stopped at that island. And, you know, it's just always intrigued me. And I, I was just right. so, so glad that you were able to give us such a thorough, firsthand eyewitness accounts of actually being there you know yeah i'm thinking because its name is easter island but i think it was the some it was the dutch who first 
got there on Easter, which is why it was called Easter Island, I think. But I'll have to I'll have to research that again. But yeah, okay. no, it's been wonderful recounting my my time there with you. Okay, and, and speaking of time, we are just about out of time. So uh, we will see everyone Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. Thank you, Heather, for being a wonderful guest. And thank you, Barbara, for producing tonight's show. And we'll see everyone Thursday night.